All right, so uh, we're going to continue this morning in our study on Judges, and we have a lot to get to. I'll try to really make sure I, I narrow down this passage as much as I could. And uh, so if you want to turn your Bibles to Judges chapter 10, we'll start there in just a minute. But whenever we read the book of Judges, if you're new to the Bible and don't really understand the, the broad scope of the Bible, the book of Judges is like a transition book from the book of Joshua to uh, the books about the kings. And so 1st, 2nd Samuel and so on, all those books. And, uh, and, and really it's kind of a transition from them coming into the land, taking the land, or supposed to take the land, and then um, them having the first kings of Israel. So there's this period of judges where, where God sends these prophets, these judges, to speak to the, the nation, to lead the nation. They're not quite kings, obviously, but they're these the prophetic people. And as you see in the book of Judges, um, we're, we're seeing a nation that has, has all of the framework that's already kind of built for, like, worshiping God. Like, they've got that. They understand that to an extent. But there's no heart to worship God. And, uh, and we see a nation that's turned their back on God, essentially. This is why the book is so depressing, because you, you read the chapters and you go, how could this be a people that are somehow linked to the God of the universe? This makes no sense whatsoever. And it's because, I think, the reason why it's in the Bible is because it shows us what happens when people have all the knowledge in the world about God, but they don't really know God. There's not really a relationship with God. And so I think it's highly relevant to where we are, we find ourselves today. So if you're someone that you struggle with apathy and complacency, you've been raised in the church, you, you've, you know all the stuff, like most of us maybe um, would claim to know about the faith, um, but it shows like how dark things can get. Even for someone who has all the knowledge and has all the information. And so this is why we're studying this book, um, as depressing as the book of Judges might be. And, um, and as I look at today's story, you know, as a little kid might say, it just gets worser and worser, all right? And uh, you'll see that happen, I think, in today's story. And so you'll, you'll, you'll think, how, what else can happen for the, for the nation of Israel? So um, turn to Judges chapter uh, 10, we'll start in verse 6. And it says, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Now, whenever you think about idolatry, many of us just picture this very tame, sort of benign thing. Like, you know, they were worshiping God and doing all the God things, and then they just somehow got distracted by an idol, like a, a statue, and they just turned toward the statue and were like, okay, we're going to worship that now. Like, that's all idolatry really is. It was a lot more than that. With idolatry, ancient idolatry, what often accompanied that was um, lots and lots of sexual sin. There was like prostitution taking place in these temples, and this was considered an act of worship to these pagan, these pagan idols and these pagan deities. They also had child sacrifice. So it wasn't like they just turned to a statue and bowed to it. It was a lot more than that. They, they committed horrific acts of sin as they um, adopted these other nations and their, their idols. We see a pattern in, in the book of Judges that um, Israel doesn't just choose one idol. They have an idolatry buffet. It's like an all-you-can-eat idolatry 
buffet, and they want to make sure that they can, like, you know, take all the, the idols of all the nations around them, and every time they worship the idols of a nation, that nation then oppresses them, turns on them and oppresses them. We see a pattern all throughout the book, and it's this idol cycle that we see where idolatry leads to them being a slave by a nation, and then they lean more and more into the idolatry, and so the slavery then leads to just more and more idolatry, and this is a pattern that we see. I think we see the same cycle with our sin, because we often turn to uh, the creation instead of the creator, and we become enslaved to our sin, and then we just try to fix it with more sin. I know you've experienced it. I've experienced it. When your idol doesn't come through for you, we go in all the more and say, well, I, I, I've got to pursue another and another and another, and, and we try to fix it with more sin, and that just leads to more and more destruction. I thought of an analogy to, to explain this. I have, um, I love sweets, especially at night after dinner. Anybody with me? Like, that's the time of the day where it's just, like, so hard to say no to dessert, right? You've had a long day. You've eaten lots of salty food throughout the day. Now you're just, like, you're craving something sweet, something sugary. But have you noticed whenever you eat something sweet, a little bit later you have this horrible aftertaste in your mouth? Have you noticed that? I have noticed this. So you eat a big piece of chocolate cake, and at first it's just, wonderful. I mean, your brain is firing on all cylinders. You just feel like it's almost like this um, wonderful experience. But then later you have this awful taste in your mouth. And you know the best way to get rid of that bad aftertaste? Eat more cake, right? Okay, brushing your teeth is an option, but a better option is to eat more cake, right? And you just keep, keep on, keep the cycle going, right? And listen, this is a little bit how I think sin works, right? Because of course, sin seems great at first, but can leave this awful, awful aftertaste. And, and, and oftentimes, we, we try to get rid of the taste by just committing more and more sin. And we just go in further on the sin, and it just gets worse and worse. I think of relationships in relation to this. If you idolize a relationship, and then it ends badly, we just think, I just need another one. And then another one, and another one, and a better one. And we try to fix our situation with more idolatry, this is kind of like the, the drunk who wants to fix the hangover by just drinking more. That, that's kind of the picture we're talking about here. Or like trying to put out fire with gasoline, right? Like it's just going to lead to more and more destruction, more and more chaos. And this is often how we approach our sin and our idolatry. And the, the nation of Israel is doing the exact same thing here. So as a result of their idolatry, God hands them over to the Philistines, to the Ammonites, and they are oppressed for 18 years, so a long time. It reminds me of a passage in Romans chapter 1, verse 24, where Paul writes, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And uh, this is a famous passage in Romans. It's this image of God giving people over to idolatry, giving them over to their passions, to their uh, whatever they're enslaved to. We see this with Israel. We see it also in the book of Romans. That sometimes God has a way of handing us over to our sin. And as an act of judgment, he gives us just what we want. And you might think, well, how is giving us what we want an act of judgment? That is not how my parents do it, right? 
Um, but when it comes to God, God has a way of if you, if you are bent on idolatry, bent on being a slave to sin, God will sometimes hand you over to that thing, to whatever that thing might be. And he does this as an act of judgment. Here's why it's an act of judgment, because he wants you to see that it's a dead end. He wants you to see that, that, that your idol and your, and your enslavement to sin doesn't lead to any kind of life. It only leads to death. So the judgment for idolatry in Scripture is just more idolatry. God's wanting you to see that there is no end to this. He's wanting you to turn towards him in repentance. It's really like as if God's saying this statement. If you want another God, get to my next slide. If you want another God besides me, go ahead. Let's see how merciful it is to you, how effective it is in saving you. You see, sometimes God hands us over to our idolatry not so we'll continue in idolatry, but so that we're going to repent and turn back to him. And so watch what happens with Israel here in Judges chapter 10, verse 10. It says, And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. So when their sin is found out, what happens? Well, they, they cry out to God. And we've seen it before, this, this pattern all throughout the book of Judges. And this right here, this is not real repentance. This is what we call worldly sorrow. This is, you know, shame or just guilt. Um, this is not godly sorrow. This is worldly sorrow that we see here. Because they are sorry for the consequences of their sin. They're not sorry that they have violated a relationship with God. That's not why they're sorry here. They're sorry because they have consequences. Because they've been handed over to these other nations. And look down at verse uh, Judges chapter 10, uh, verse 14, where it says, Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. So it's like God's using some sarcasm here. He's saying, so they're crying out to, to God, and God says, why don't you go cry out to your idols? Go cry out to your, to your gods, you know, the gods that you prefer over me. See if they'll help you. See if they'll save you. So God sees right through their charade because they're, they're treating God just like they do their idols. They're approaching God like this. You know, if we can just push the right buttons and, and make the right sacrifices, then, uh, then maybe God will do what we want him to do. And that's how they relate to the idols. So they're now treating the real, the true God, just like they treat they're idols. You see, it is possible to turn from idolatry in an idolatrous way. It is possible to turn from idolatry in an idolatrous way. You might say it like this. Idolatry is not just worshiping another god, but to worship the right god in the wrong way. So think how this relates to our relationship with God. That there are some times when we treat God just like we treat our idols. We relate to God in the same way. If I can perform for him, then he's going to perform for me. Many of you guys heard our speaker at The Way this past weekend, Mo. She did a great job talking about this in her own life and in our lives, showing how we often approach God just like we approach our idols. If I can perform for him, he'll perform for me, and it'll be this nice little relationship cycle that takes place where I do for him, he just blesses me. 
and that's how it's supposed to work. But this is to treat God just like we would treat an idol. Now, in verses uh, 15 and 16, we're not going to read that, but you can look in your Bibles yourselves, and we see where they, they finally repent. They finally acknowledge their sin. So this looks like real repentance in verses 15 and 16. But then watch what happens. God still allows the Ammonites to attack them. So here's an important lesson for us. That repentance doesn't mean that we're not going to have consequences. So they, they repent in verses 15 and 16, but there's still consequences. God hands them over to the Ammonites, lets, lets the Ammonites attack them. But then God raises up a judge to lead Israel, and it's another unlikely leader. Skip down to Judges chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Now, Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a, mighty war- was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. There's a lot in that sentence right there, isn't there? Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So there's a lot of family drama in those couple of passages, right? There's this guy named Gilead. He has a wife. He has some sons. But then he sins by committing adultery with a prostitute, and she gives birth to this boy named Jephthah. His brothers reject him, so now he's an outcast. So imagine for a moment being this kid, being Jephthah. You had no control over how you were born. Your brothers hate you. Your dad is probably ashamed of you. Your stepmom is bitter because you're a constant reminder of her husband's sin. So imagine the the emotional pain that this young boy is living in. You see, when you read the scriptures, like you need to read the scriptures like these are real people with real families, real stories. We tend to gloss over these things sometimes. But imagine the emotional pain for this man, Jephthah. So in Judges 11.3, it says, Then Jephthah fled from his brothers, and he lived in the land of Tob, which sounds like a nice place. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. So now he has, he's kind of like a renegade. He's kind of like an outlaw. He is someone who causes trouble. We see this happening today where whenever there's a, can happen, especially with, with guys, when there's a tough family situation or a tough family life, or there's rejection and there's brokenness happening, um, at times that sadness and brokenness can get channeled into anger. And all that anger gets channeled, and this is what happens for him. And now he's like, a, he's like a mafia leader, like a gang leader. And there are people around him, right, that are his uh, people he associates with. And so the, the Ammonites, they come and they attack Israel, and Israel doesn't have a leader. So look at Judges chapter 11, verses uh, 6 through 8. It says, And they, meaning Israel, they say to Jephthah, Come be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me? And drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, 
That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go, out, go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Do you see a little like parallel with what they said to Jephthah and how they talked to God? Are you seeing this connection? They are treating Jephthah just how they treated God. You see, they kicked God out, and they worshiped idols, but then they come crawling back to him. They want to worship him again. But they kicked out Jephthah, and now they need deliverance, and now they're crawling back to Jephthah. You see, all throughout Judges, we see that the people, they treat the judge how they treat God. And they only want Jephthah because of what Jephthah can do for them, and this is how they relate to God. I want you to see something else here. We showed you earlier in Judges that God uses people that you would least expect him to use. Or he uses our weakness to accomplish his purposes. So this guy Jephthah, he's an outcast. But God uses his rejection to prepare him for his role. So how did Jephthah become this mighty warrior? Well, somehow God worked in all that rejection and brokenness and sadness, and God used that story to bring about this, this, this person, this man, that God would eventually use to go up against the Ammonites. You see, the same is true for many of us in the room. If you've experienced any kind of suffering or painful circumstances, painful things, in your life, but here's the reality. We, we worship a God who is the God of redemption, a God who takes sadness and brokenness and really difficult things and, and makes it into something else. Now listen, I am not saying, I am not saying that sin is good. I'm not calling evil good. I'm not saying that what may have happened to you or to your family is a good thing. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that God can take those things and he can make something different out of it. And he does this here with, with this man, Jephthah. He actually is going to use him to lead the nation, to lead the Israelites. You know, throughout our lives, we can, be, we can be sinned against in all kinds of ways. And we can have a sinful response to that. So there is a sinful response to sin. That happens a lot. Or we can have a redemptive response to sin. And that's a choice that we have to make as we go through our lives. So now, you're going to see this story is very complex. You're going to see one of the most difficult stories in Judges unfold here. Because I am not saying today that Jephthah is some finished product by any means. God's using him, but you're going to see how broken he still is. So look, I don't want to get lost in the weeds. We're going to skip to the end of Judges 11. In Judges 11, there's a lot of back and forth between the Ammonites and the Israelites, but here's what you need to know. The Ammonites attack Israel, and Jephthah leads them to victory, but right before the battle, Jephthah does something really strange. And we'll see this in Judges 11, verses 30 to 31, where it says, And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. 
Now listen, making a vow to God was not a strange thing. It happened all the time. But the content of his vow was really odd. Because when we think of sacrifice, what do we normally think of? We think of animals, right? That was an Old Testament thing. But he says specifically, whatever comes out from the doors of my house. Now listen, back then, people didn't have pets inside the house. Like the the animals stayed outside, the people stayed inside. So for him to say, whatever comes out of my house, the first thing I see after the victory, I'm going to sacrifice. Do you know what he's committing to? He is committing to human sacrifice. So we see how even though God uses these judges, each one is severely flawed. So human sacrifice would have been common among the pagan people. So again, he's mixing his worship of God with pagan practices. He's doing what the people did. He's also treating God like an idol here. So we imagine Jephthah is thinking, you know, as he returns home from victory, that the first person out of his house will be a servant possibly, you know, someone that he thinks is expendable. But instead, the first person, I'm going to summarize here what happens, the the first person to come out of his house is his only daughter. And she welcomes him. It says she, she dances, she has tambourines, like she's excited to see her dad come home from battle, and he's still alive, and she's excited to see her dad. And as soon as he sees her, the, the text says that he is so distraught that he just rips his clothes in grief. And he tells her about the vow he made. And what's crazy about the story is that she seems to understand and accept the vow. She seems to be okay, not, not okay with it, but she seems to, you know, submit. She thinks of it as like, well, this must be God's will. And so she, she talks to him like she submits to this vow that he is, this horrible vow he's made to God. And we think she understands the full weight of this vow because she does two things in response. First, she tells him to keep the vow because he made it to God. And secondly, she says, give me two months to grieve and then I'll come back. And so she goes away for two months. And then when she returns, Jephthah carries out this tragic vow that he makes to God. It's a horrific story, an awful story. You see, some, sometimes people are so far from God, they adopt what I would call twisted virtues. A virtue is something that's good and noble, like keeping a vow, but It's severely twisted when the vow you made was to commit human sacrifice. So just for the record, if you make a vow to commit murder, it's okay to break the vow. So this is like someone, we see this in like organized crime, don't we, today? Like, this is like someone in the mafia who lives by a moral code, like, but it's really twisted. You know, you you keep your promises or I'm going to kill you, right? It's like this really twisted standard of like moral code, right? It doesn't make any sense. But everybody has a moral code. Everybody does. And here it is severely twisted. So why would Jephthah make such a vow? Well, there's two reasons. He was deeply desensitized to the violence of the pagan cultures around him. And so human sacrifice was a thing, and people did these things all the time to appease the gods, to appease their idols. And you know, sometimes believers can profess faith in God, but meanwhile, we adopt 
the beliefs of the culture around us and allow those beliefs to live alongside our belief in God, I think that we can be guilty of the same thing. You know, somebody might say, well, you know, I believe the gospel. I believe in Jesus. I go to church. I attend church. I'm, I'm a committed follower of Christ. But then begin to adopt our culture's view of sexuality. And it might even lead to twisted virtues, things like, you know, I, I want to be loving and compassionate, you know, a virtue. So I'm going to say that certain sexual sins are okay. And now it's twisted. What about how we share our faith? Maybe, maybe you're someone that you're, you're bold in your faith and you see yourself that way and you walk around and you're like, you know, I'm one of those truth teller people. I tell people how it is. I tell them like it is and how it is. I'm one of those people. I just tell the truth all the time. Okay, telling the truth is a virtue, but it becomes twisted when you're a jerk when you do it. And so there's countless ways in which we we think we're doing something good. It's a virtue, but it becomes twisted and, and tainted with sin, and we adopt the way that our culture might do these things. And there's a long list of things I'm sure you can think of that are related to that. But the second reason that Jephthah makes this vow, he's treating God like people treat their idols because he has adopted a works-based righteousness with God. If God, if I do blank, well, God's going to accept me. And so human sacrifice was one way to pay off a pagan god. And so he's treating God just like he treats his idols. In reality, God only wants one kind of human sacrifice, and it's described in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where it says, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, and this is your spiritual act of worship. And this is not talking about the kind of sacrifice that Jephthah did here. But sometimes we adopt a works-based righteousness after coming to faith. We might know we're saved by grace, but we're still trying to earn favor with God through our works. This is what Jephthah's doing here. You might say it like this. Good works should, work should be a response to God's mercy, but not a method to gain his mercy. I think we see this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. That in view of God's mercy, so as a result of what he has, he's done for you, then you live your life as a living sacrifice. It's living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. And this is your spiritual act of worship. What else do we learn here? I think we can summarize it in this quote. We must beware of mistaking God's work through us for evidence that God has finished his work in us. Just because we're using our gifts or doing things for God does not mean that our hearts are pleasing to him. It is really scary to think how true this is. I think about this every year when impact rolls around, that many of us are stepping up, we're using our gifts, we're going to go do things for God, we're going to um, do all the, the mission things, mission trips, but meanwhile our hearts might really be far from him. And what can happen sometimes is whenever you feel like God is working through you, it can cause you to be blinded about how he wants to work still in you. Because you're doing all the activity, you're doing the things, and, and yet maybe you're ignoring what's happening in your heart. Maybe you're ignoring the, 
the sinful addictions that you're living in, the cycles that you're living in internally in your heart. And it can create this self-deception. I think this is really what, what Jephthah is doing. It's like he's, he's doing this thing in his mind that he thinks is good, but it's severely twisted. And it's really, really messed up. And God, of course, is going to use him, this severely flawed person, to lead the people against the Ammonites, but he's still got a lot of work that he needs to happen on the inside. Yeah, the same is true for us. You know, many of us are more shaped by culture than God's word. We've got to ask ourselves, you know, where are my blind spots? Like, where, where do I allow culture to trump what God says about my life? Last thing, do we believe in a God of grace? At the first sin in Genesis chapter 3, the first lie of the serpent was to make Adam and Eve question God's goodness. And ever since the first sin, I think we still try to, we still try to control God and make God indebted to us through our good works. So how might my life and how might your life be different if we truly believed the victory had already been won through Jesus on the cross? going to have you guys go to your, um, your breakouts. And so if you're a 